Welcome to the podcast series, Now I Am Listening. This episode involves topics that are suitable for audience members over the age of 13, and contains subject matter that may be triggering for some listeners. For information about where to find support or help with any of the topics discussed in this episode, you can visit our website at nowimlistening.com. Kia ora, and welcome to Now I Am Listening, brought to you in association with adjacentcommunications.com. I'm your host, Andrew Johnson, and with me today is psychologist Dr. Madeline Ami. In this episode, we explore the inner workings of the human mind and how Dr. Madeline's unique childhood growing up in a cult has shaped the work she does today. We look at why we all do the things we do and learn more about what is a thought, what is a feeling, and where do they actually exist inside our head. This episode really does look at how our thinking becomes our reality today and in the future. So, let's get listening. Dr. Madeline Ami, now I am listening. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, sitting down with you is something that uh, I wanted to do when I first thought about uh, this podcast because we met many, many years ago and um, since then you've been on a journey of of discovery uh, in this fantastic world of how our brain works. So thank you very much for giving me a bit of insight into your brain. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> now, um, one of the things that's uh, interesting in terms of what you do is um, you've come from a background that was quite unique in terms of your, your childhood. And so can you just talk to me a little bit about some of the unique factors that happened with your childhood that uh, may or may not have played into kind of the person you are today? I grew up in a cult, so it was kind of a, a strange religious environment which um, was pretty oppressive and pretty different because it wasn't any kind of mainstream religious ideas and I had to do a, a whole lot of really strange things as well as keep it a big secret um, and so yeah it just made me feel really different and weird from other people but um, yeah there's no such thing as normal. <laughs> Yeah, it seems to be that way these days. And when you were in that environment, you weren't just in it like 24 hours a day, right? You were actually leaving and going outside to regular world and coming back into that world? Yeah, so going to school and we, we didn't live in a commune or anything. We lived in separate houses. But um, yeah, the, the way that they operated, um, they'd ring up and give messages that would be delivered to the rest of the family and then they'd meet um, on the weekends at, at meetings, kind of like church and do you kind of remember the time that you realised that there was something maybe different or unique about the way that the environment you you were in was from other people's environments? Yeah, like when they started to swap wives and everybody had to right. change partners and for a few years and then change back and then we'd get instructions like uh, you're not allowed to wear the, the colour black or um, kind of God has decided that you must drive a Vespa um, to school and which is pretty cool, but at the time I'm like, oh my god, this cult's so lame. This is so embarrassing. Look at what they're making me do. I, I probably would have appreciated that a little bit more. But yeah, and you, so did you ever like? Was the word cult ever used in that specific way? No, they uh, no, they don't refer to themselves as a cult. But um, when you look at what they were practicing, it's just a regular cult. And how long were you in that environment for? Basically, kind of my whole life up until my teens. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the reason why 
my dad married my mum in the first place was because you had to be a family man to join it. So you had to have a wife and you had to have children. So that's when my dad decided to, to get a wife. Right. Okay. And um, when you think about what you now know in your professional career, about how our, our lives are shaped by that environment where as a child and how we sort of see how behaviours work or interpersonal relationships, was there anything that you think shaped you differently and because of some of those factors or did it just seem like it, that was the normal thing that people did? Yeah, well... Kind of picked up that other families quite weren't having similar models of religion and experiences that I was. So I, I could tell from an early age that it was different. And then I also lived for a period of time with my grandparents and other families. Um, and so I, I kind of had that experience of not being immersed in it completely all the time that I could see that there was a difference. And I think I, I felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm a rebel. I'm going to rebel against this and I'm going to act out and, and, you know, not follow instructions or be quite naughty. But then I think growing up and coming into adulthood and into my relationships, it's taken me a while to figure out that the effect that that had on me was it just made me incredibly submissive and not being able to speak about my needs in a relationship and not being able to set boundaries with other people and just making the stakes way too high with all that kind of stuff. So it took me a while to figure out that actually it did, did affect me. Yeah, and I suppose is that one of the reasons or drivers that you've fallen into one of the specialty areas that you look at um, in terms of the fawn response, um, which touches on some of those things around your, you know, validating your own wants and needs and setting boundaries and those kind of things. Do you think that that's what's pushed you to to sort of focus on that area? Yeah, definitely. Because I'm a psychologist, and it took me so long to figure out what my issues were or what was the barriers to having healthy relationships or why I kept having the same kind of patterns play out over and over again. And so when I came across the form response um, out of the four survival responses, it, it was a big eye opener for me. So I figured it helped me a lot that this information could be really useful to other people. And as a psychologist, do you, I mean, I, I think of it like being a like a car mechanic, like, you know, do you have to be the world's perfect driver before you try to, you know, fix other people's cars? Like how, how, as a psychologist, <laughs> were you going, oh, yeah, I've got it all together, therefore I can, you know, I think I can learn to be better than others at this stuff? Or was it because actually you were looking to help yourself in the first place? Um, psychologists are, are just humans and maybe you're, you're there and you're able to be an objective person helping and supporting somebody else and you've got information, you've got tools to be able to do that. But your life can be a bit of a train wreck in the background. Um, that doesn't mean that you're not going to do a good job when you're supporting other people. But yeah, and I think were you discovering that as you were going through your studies too, in terms of like, oh, that's that's me, in terms of looking at the case studies or, or, or scenarios. Yeah, I think when I came across the, this information on childhood trauma and putting those puzzle pieces together, and then it just kind of making sense to me. That's when yeah, brain starts ticking away as well, and going, oh yeah. I identify with that. You say that uh, the fawn response is one of the four, so in terms of fight and flight, fawn and freeze. Was it specifically your own experience that drew you to the fawn response in people as a starting point? Because I know you've got a broader part of everything that you do, but that's been a specialty area for you. Yeah, well, I work in trauma. Um, I've been a psychologist um, 
for about 15 years and I was a counsellor before that as well. So it took me a while though to come across the information on the fawn response um, in relation to childhood trauma and I think for a lot of people it's because, you know, if you've been really nice to everybody and you've been too nice, no one's going to go, hey buddy, you've got a problem with this, I think you need to go sort yourself out. Whereas people with a fight response often have you know, narcissistic behaviours or they lash out at other people and they project and um, people go, well, you need to go to anger management and everybody knows about the problem. But with form response, um, when you're too nice, you don't have good boundaries, you're people-pleasing, you might be submissive, you might not speak your opinion or even kind of know who you are and, and you're influenced by other people really easily. Um, it's, it's all internal and you, you, other people don't really see that. When you say it like that, it sounds really obvious, but I know from my experience when we worked on a project together, which was around the fawn response, and uh, where you have a series of um, modules and go through the different elements and people to understand, you know, what what it all is and means for them. For me, it was something that I was like, this is so common, but it is like a bit of a hidden um, I don't want to say disability, but certainly it can be dis- you know there can be a disability to how it makes people function in their life if they don't realize that being too nice sometimes is not always good for you, you know to serve your own purpose. Yeah, and you're not always going to have growth or you're not always going to have healthy relationships if you're just giving in to everybody else and making sure everybody else is happy. Is that people born that way? You know the nature versus nurture argument sort of thing is, are we nurtured into being submissive because we're surrounded by narcissists or is it our nature just to be because, you know, one of our parents or both our parents are lovely people and genetically we're a lovely person too and we're just nice to everybody? Is it a combination of both? I think it's probably a combination of, um, you know, your personality, your temperament, um, kind of who you naturally are, but then also you you always need the environment to kind of bring those attributes out. So quite often if you have an overdeveloped form response, you've got a parent that's narcissistic or you weren't taught to be able to speak out or communicate your needs or express yourself or just be allowed to be you as a child that would have been shunned or shut down or you learnt very quickly as a child. I can't be myself because if I'm myself, then um, that's I'm sacrificing attachment and attachment to my parent is the most important thing because that guarantees my survival. Yeah, so I wondered when I was looking at it if that was what a lot of people have, whether it's in our attachment to our parents or to our siblings or to our friends or to our partners, that it's a core part of the human need to belong, right, to be in the tribe and connected to people, that you are literally sacrificing your own rights and needs because you don't want to be on your own or you don't want to be just, you know, be yelled at by somebody. You don't want to have an angry situation occur. So you literally just don't function properly. Yeah, and and I think... If you've learned that you can't speak out or you can't be yourself or have needs, um, when you're in relationships, when you're older, quite often you're kind of drawn to similar dynamics that you're used to because our brain likes familiarity and we think, oh, chemistry, but really it's our brain going, yeah, familiarity, I like this, I know what to expect. And then because you're, you're in similar dynamics as an adult in your relationships or because of your experiences as a child, the stakes are so much higher with being yourself that it feels more dangerous and it feels more uncomfortable. Does that sort of touch into like laws of attraction, I suppose, that as someone who might be have an overdeveloped fawn response, that you do tend to literally need or want 
in a kind of weird way to have narcissistic energy because it feels familiar, even though you might sense that it's not good for you? Yeah, it might be more comfortable or you just might find on a subconscious level you're just more attracted to those types of people. Um, quite often there's the narcissist-empath dynamic. Um, and so, yeah, they, time and time again you find that there's those relationship dynamics where you haven't been able to resolve unhealed wounds from childhood and or kind of being able to recognise what's unhealthy in relationships. Yeah, so how do people do that in terms of just, oh, they're just yin and yang or there's opposites attract, you know, that's just how that, that relationship works. It won't be a friendship or, or a partnership. But what's the, how do you identify the difference between what is sort of just a healthy opposites attract versus a dependency on, on a type of personality that doesn't help serve your, you know, your inner purpose, I suppose? Yeah, I think when you find yourself time and time again getting into toxic relationships and you feel that you don't want that in your life anymore or maybe you don't understand why it keeps happening or you've just um, been able to extract yourself from one of these relationships, um, then I think knowledge is power. The more that you understand kind of your own childhood trauma and triggers and your own thoughts, behaviours and feelings, then you're able to make more conscious decisions and relationships with you, you yourself. You'll be able to set boundaries and know that you need to voice your needs and have your needs met in relationships. And then it's you end up having more balanced relationships. And do people tend to come to you with that almost like a self-diagnosis that, hey, I think I'm fawning, <laughs> or do they come to you with a general sense and you help define that? How does that process work when people, when you work with people who might be in that sort of fawn response mode? Quite often they come and talk about giving themselves away or making sure that everybody else is all right, not themselves, and they're, they're burnt out or they feel guilty or selfish if they have their needs met in relationships or they feel like they can't set boundaries, it's too overwhelming and it's anxiety provoking. Yeah, and then so therefore the fear of that anxiety just says, I'll just put up with the burnout because I don't want to sort of face the fear. of Is that they just sort of basically got to a point where they can't do it anymore? Yeah, or they're having really a lot of difficulties in their relationship because they've got these unhealthy dynamics and behaviours happening, but they feel powerless to be able to change it. And one of the things you touched on in terms of boundaries, I know that some of the concepts um, I've heard from you and from others is around when it comes to boundaries, at least, that, um, you know, the power of being able to say no with silence afterwards. And I just, when I heard it for the first time, I kind of thought, oh, yeah, that's, that's obvious. But when you try to put it into practice, it's actually quite difficult to just not want to justify why you're saying no. So in terms of setting boundaries, why is just saying no and leaving it at that so important? Because you don't have to explain yourself. Boundaries are healthy. And if you don't set boundaries, your relationships are, are going to get ill. You're going to be resentful or you're going to have burnout. And so it's healthy for you and the person that you're setting a boundary with to establish boundaries because, because it keeps you safe and it keeps them safe as well. And I think people that have healthy boundaries themselves are able to respect when somebody else is making a boundary. And it's the type of people or the People with the behaviours um, that are narcissistic or not so healthy that have a hard time accepting boundaries. 
And you touch on um, narcissism or narcissistic people. And so for those who don't understand the difference between someone who might be assertive, even aggressive perhaps, versus someone who is a pure narcissist, um, I've always found that people got different interpretations of what it really means in terms of how they see the superiority that they have and the fear of losing it. Therefore, they just try to make everybody else feel crappy because that makes them feel superior, that, that they're trapped in their own cycle. So it's not always just an aggressive person that's a narcissist, is it? No, um, you can have covert narcissism, which is kind of more under the radar um, when somebody is only focused about their needs and wants and interests and um, they might not be overtly nasty, <laughs> um, but then they might do things which disregard other people's needs and maybe, you know, not being able to be empathetic. But I think narcissism, it's a continuum, just like, fawning would be or any other kind of behavior you've got the low end and then it goes up to the more extreme end and very few people are fully diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder that's right up the top but you can have traits of narcissism and that's the fight response so through childhood trauma um, people develop a fight response where they fight to get their needs met they can become angry and hostile they can project their discomfort and hurts onto other people to make them feel better. And, yeah, it happens in varying degrees. Yeah, so I think for someone who is a, um, it may be, you know, in that sort of fawn response zone, it's so counterintuitive to the way that they think. It's almost like the person's from another planet. So how, how do people, are there any ways that if you think someone's a narcissist, do you ask them? Do you tell them? Do you, how do you work with narcissists in your life if you think there's someone that is around you or influencing you? Yeah. Well, I'd be careful not to label somebody as a narcissist because nobody likes Not labels. a good argument starter. Yeah. But, I mean, to recognize that somebody might have a little or a lot of narcissistic behaviors and that you're experiencing those and whether that's impacting you and whether you need to make a choice around that to look after yourself. And that's about setting those boundaries in terms of what you will and will not accept. Yeah, and making sure that you're maintaining your needs because that's so important for your mental health. And in terms of um, the relationship to childhood trauma with the four sort of areas with fight and flight and fawn and freeze. So I was um, learning a little bit more about uh, procrastination and how where people sometimes think it's lazy or connected to perfectionism, where you are worried about everything being so perfect, you end up doing nothing. And from the outside perspective, people think you're just being lazy or procrastinating. But w is there actually a, a reason that we do sometimes get to that point of just absolute anxiety that we freeze in terms of that definition? So w what does that mean in terms of when you talk about freeze, like you talk about fawn or flight and fight? Yeah, well, freeze is when you feel like you, you don't have the capacity to be able to move or get going or carry out tasks that you need to do. And if you're procrastinating, um, you know, quite often we can get into the cycle where we are being self-critical and we're saying, oh, come on, you're so lazy and useless. Why can't you do this? This is so simple or you should have done it by now. And then it kind of perpetuates the problem and makes it worse and snowballs. And then you're more sitting on the couch, um, not being able to complete the task or do what you want um, to be doing. And it's like, being able to recognize that you have an emotional block to something, that you're becoming avoidant or it's making you freeze because you're having such an emotional response. And quite often we don't recognize that because it's not like anger where you know when you're angry and, you know, you're fuming or when you're sad and you're crying. 
um, but freezing or being avoidant, um, it's, it's, sometimes it can be more subtle and you don't realise, actually, this is taking a huge emotional toll on me for some reason. What is that reason? Can I link it back to anything? Is there anything why I'm having such trouble and procrastinating? Is it my expectations? Is it um, feeling like I'm not good enough or I can't do a, a good enough job on this? And then being able to work around that emotion and being able to take care of yourself. And quite often, we use a lot of mental energy as well when we're procrastinating. We're thinking about the thing that we should be doing. Um, and, and then when you go to sit down to do the thing, you've used up all your energy okay. because you've been yep. thinking about it too much. Yep. So it's better. If you're feeling like that, the best thing to do is just take a complete break. Try not to think about it. Watch a movie, do something that's going to intercept those thoughts so you're not thinking about it and then try again. Is it the awareness factor as opposed to like fearing that you've got this feeling actually sort of being aware of it, giving yourself some ownership, actually half the problem in terms of once you're aware of your state, I suppose, then yeah. you can actually put an action plan in place? Like recognising you've got an emotional block or there's a trigger, something's going on and it's just really a sign that you need to take care of yourself. And we, we live in a really hyper-connected world with social media and everyone Instagramming their life and Facebooking their life and, you know. Um, and it seems as though there's always been a tendency since social media was developed that you put the perfect perception of yourself out there, all the stuff that's going to get everyone going, oh, why don't you look great or love that new dress or you're so lucky that you're on holiday in this beautiful place. But ultimately, from my perspective and talking with people um, in relation to the podcast and other things, a lot of people have some of these trauma um, or emotional blocks, as you sort of refer to them as. So from your experience, how common or how unaware, I suppose, is the majority of this, of society that we actually all kind of, it's not just a special thing that such and such has got an emotional block or had childhood trauma. Actually, a lot of us suffer from it, from, you know, the majority of the, the population. Yeah, I think everybody has emotions from their conditioning that they experienced as a child that come up in adult life. Um, some might be to varying degrees. Um, some may have a little or a lot, but there's always something. And I think the more that you recognize it, the more that you can act or, or be with full consciousness rather than subconscious to your feelings or at the whim of your emotions and not understanding why. The more that you're aware of these triggers or where they come from or what might be causing them, the more that you can make decisions in your life of how to move forward and take care of yourself, make sure that your mental well-being is good and making sure that, you know, you're um, maintaining your relationships and making sure that they're healthy. And so from a pure psychology point of view, when it comes to the concepts around thoughts and the concept around feelings, they often sometimes get merged together when people are describing where they're at with, with themselves. And so what is our reason our mind or our brain needs to have these thoughts and needs to have these feelings and why sometimes they can be so super connected is there some beneficial reason that our brains do that or is there a way that we can control that and benefit the way that we want to create our future, for example? Well, according to cognitive behavioural therapy, uh, thoughts come first followed by feelings. So if you change your thoughts, you can change your feelings. Um, sometimes that's not so easy to do when we get hijacked by our feelings and I think it's probably a, a, a combination of how to approach 
changing how you're feeling or thinking about something. But we have an emotional guidance system and that's for a reason and it's not to be ignored or to tell ourselves, oh, this is stupid, I shouldn't be having these feelings. Our feelings are there because it's our, our feelings are talking to us and letting us know what our triggers are or how we feel about things or how we want to make decisions around what's going on in our life. So it's important to listen to how you're feeling um, and try and understand that. But also at the same time, feelings aren't facts. So you might feel that you're hopeless and useless and you're lazy because you're procrastinating. Doesn't mean that that's a fact. But maybe going, okay, well, I'm not feeling so great about this. Why am I not feeling so great? Okay, let's take a step back. Where does that come from? Let's delve a little deeper. In our brain, are thoughts and feelings created in the same parts of our brain? Well, we have our cognitive part of our brain, which is at the forefront. And then we have our emotional brain, which is at the back of our head, down, mm-hmm. down the bottom, which is our most primitive brain. So that's our survival brain. Is that like the reptilian brain they talk about? Yeah. So that's where, you know, we're... And, and it works very fast because, you know, we need to have a strong emotional response. If a tiger is coming to chase us, we need to jump into survival mode and have fear and run away or do what we need to do, hide in the grass. So yeah. um, we need to action that pretty fast. And sometimes that's why we can get emotionally hijacked in situations. We're not thinking clearly. We're not in our right mind. We're just feeling emotional. So, yeah, we have a combination of two. And how how do the feelings get in front of the thoughts? Like if we say, you know, they got thoughts, uh, obviously a bit more of a logical guidance system, I suppose, in terms of maybe a bit more rational, if, if that's a word, to describe it. How do we how do we get hold of, you know, because you do see some people that fly off the handle quickly, they're just totally, and they don't remember what they're saying, and then, as you say, not thinking clearly. How do you, are there plans you can say, I recognize that I'm having this emotional response and therefore I can change my thoughts, so therefore that will help change the feeling? Or do you just own the feeling? Or is there ways you can, if you recognize it, what do you do next? Well, if you're able to manage yourself in the, in the moment and not um, do anything um, catastrophic, you can take a step back and maybe when you've calmed down a bit, you might be able to think about it in a little bit. Uh, sound away but if you're thinking you know just writing down on a piece of paper on one side of the piece of paper write down all your rational logical thoughts about the situation and then on the other side of the paper write down all your emotional thoughts and your feelings and then have a look at the two take a step back and what's your wise mind what's the bigger picture here what do you need to acknowledge with your emotional state but then what is also kind of the facts and the logic and rational thoughts and areas in, in the situation. And if our feelings are coming from that part of the brain, which is like a really old school reptilian, I think in my language, but that do are people, do they have more developed emotional parts of their brain than other people's brains in that area? Are they, are they, are they different or we all have the same kind of um, feeling scope, I suppose? It depends on your conditioning, I suppose, um, in childhood. So if you're conditioned and you have a major trigger, um, that part of your brain's going to be really developed when that pops up in your adult life that you're going to respond really fast because you've had to as a child. Right. So it's almost training it in terms of how to what it f- feels like when you have the feeling and then what to do with it. Yeah, like when, when you're a child and all the experiences that you go through, that's like your map for adulthood. Um, unless you're conscious to your triggers and thoughts and feelings, where they come from, that you've been able to unpack that. Quite often we get 
hit with triggers and we don't realise and we just respond emotionally. Wow, okay. So there is hope though, right, in terms of if we're looking forward to the, the future and in, say, the situations we live in in an everyday environment. So for those people who've got a partner, um, often they've come from a very different background or different tribe or environment that they grew up in. And in terms of um, positive opposites, so not having someone who's just like you, but it's quite nice to have a partner who's, you know, different or challenges you or, you know, supports you or balances up things you're not good at and you're good at other things. Um, How do you navigate where some of the basic elements of like communication and thought process and have that conversation to build a bit of a platform so that there's an understanding or a level playing field to say, hey, it's okay that you're different from me and it's okay that I'm different from you, um, but it's worth recognising so we don't get into conflict over conflict. Yeah, recognising each other's communication style and maybe what led them to behaving or communicating in a certain way comes from a place and from their experiences. And if you're able to have conversations in the first place, then being able to put everything on the table and and work through it together in a non-confrontational way or where somebody feels like they have to be defensive. It's just, you know, figuring it out together so that you're able to communicate in the future and you know where each other's coming from can be really helpful. Yeah, and does do you, have you found that, say, as a parent, how do you play mum and not psychologist when you're assessing behaviours, feelings and emotions and thoughts of your children? So for other people who've got kids who might be thinking, okay, well, I've kind of got this big responsibility because this child is going to have either trauma or, you know, of some scale and um, it's going to affect how their brain develops. Is there anything that parents can do or that you do that that might be different because you've got the knowledge that you do? I think as a parent, you can, you just do your best um, and your, your best is enough. With kids, you never know how it's going to turn out until they're grown up and then they come back and they tell you, you should have done this and, <laughs> you know, and they've got selective memory and you're like, oh, I know, but you can only do your best as a parent. Um, yeah, but... What I love about, um, the, there's a, a training called the Circle of Security and that's about attachment and went to this training and it was really great because they said, if you're doing this 30% of the time, that's enough. I'm like, oh, 30%, what? that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I can manage 30%. Um, and what that is, is being able to receive your your child emotionally and being able to connect with them, um, but then also letting them be in the world and be their own person as well. So it's a combination of the two. So like with narcissistic parents, they sometimes hold their children very close to them and you have to act a certain way or be a certain person or be a reflection of them. You can't deviate from that. And then they don't allow them to be in the world, allow their children to be in the world as themselves. Or they might leave them out there in the world by themselves and not bring them in and connect with them. And then they're left hanging on a limb. Right. But if you're, you're able to balance those two things then and you can do it 30% of the time, then that's good. Okay, well, 30%. So, yeah, that's that's a good goal. And do you have conversations with your kids that are not like being a psychologist, but kind of do you talk to them about like how their brain's working? Do you have those kind of conversations that maybe because you've got that information in your head that maybe other mums don't have those conversations, but do you ever find yourself having things, hey, you're having this emotion because, you know, or you're having this tension right now. Or do you do you ever go into that mode and sort of explain what's happening to their brains? I think they just roll their eyes at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suppose it's a fine line in terms of not trying to treat them as a patient. Um, Sometimes 
when my my son might have something scary in his head because he's come across a video on YouTube um, and he can't get out of his mind, might take him through a grounding technique and try and focus on the room and his senses rather than thinking about the scary image in his mind. But yeah, yeah. not so much brain talk. Yeah, right. <laughs> And you touch on something there that's also interesting, I suppose, different from when you and I were younger or as kids, and that we're a lot more connected to outside our little security blanket. I think when I was growing up, you know, had my family, my extended family lived in Australia, so that was a bit different to go to Australia and and that. But other than that, growing up in Onihanga, my friends and family, very, you know, night tight sort of group of people, and most of my friends I've known since I was three, four, five are still my good friends today, many years later. So it was very small, whereas these days kids can connect to someone who's in New York through various means across the internet or be exposed to things that your parents have no way to control. So from a psychology point of view, how do we navigate this super connected environment and stop absorbing it either as a child, for our children or as even as adults and not, I mean, it's, I know it's maybe easy to, to say don't look at social media or don't use too much screen time and things like that. But when it does create a trigger and they are exposed to those kind of things, how, how do you navigate that in this, this day and age? Yeah, well, technology is moving so fast, it's hard to keep up. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you can put in parental locks and um, if you've got a crafty kid they can always find a way to get around that and um, how to beat the system but I think being able to have a relationship with your kids where you can talk openly about these things as much as possible so that if things do come up um, that they're able to bring that to you or you're able to have a conversation around them so you can still be there to guide them rather than them experiencing these things by themselves Um, like I've worked with quite a lot of kids that have come across things on the internet or they've been vulnerable um, to other people interacting with, with them. And I think one of the hardest things is going through that experience yourself and alone and then coming to your own conclusions about how, what kind of person you are or if somehow it's your fault or you start to, with kids, when they start to think things about themselves in a negative way, that's not true. So that's why it's so important to be able to have that open communication so that you can talk to them about these things and unpack them and be that person to be like, hey, well, no, that's not actually true and because of this and then help support them. Yeah, it's a tricky one because we sort of are looking at well, all these other people say this is cool or this this video, even if it, I don't like it or it's disturbing to me, millions of people have liked it and shared it even, you know, it's a kind of a, do we go with the crowd or do we sort of stick with what we know is right or wrong? It seems like there's just so much stimulation these days. Yeah, overstimulation. Yeah. And in terms of going back to sort of the idea between the thoughts and the feelings, where does our intuition come from? Like how do we know that something, you know, for us what feels right is not always going to be the same as what someone else will validate as being right. So how do we go, How do we sort of navigate understanding what we are intuition is coming from? And whether to listen to your intuition? Yeah, or just like am I just, am I stuck in my ways or am I uninformed or no, I just know this is not right or I know this is not for me. I think... Understanding or, or knowing what your values are, because that's, that's a good compass for decision making or if you're listening to intuition and, you know, that, that's strongly linked, linked to your values and what feels right to you and what feels wrong and what line are you not going to cross because that's just, you know, you're just not built that way and you don't align with that. So 
I think if you're pretty strong on knowing what your values are, then you can understand and, and make the right decisions for yourself. So not to be glib about it, but everyone uses the word values, mm. right? So how do you define what a value is? What, what, I mean, is it something that you literally value or is it a feeling you value? Is it a goal that you value? How do, if people are thinking, yeah, I hear people talk about values all the time. So how do I figure out what my values are? What are the techniques people could, could try or just simple things that might just say, well, that's something you value if you can identify this. So that's a value for you. Yeah. Well, maybe thinking about the different areas in your life and what's important to you in that area with work or family or kids and parenting. Um, yeah, just thinking about what you resonate with and what you identify with. So they're the things that make you happy or bring you joy? Or things that you feel are, are right or are important to you. So, for example, for me, with my family, it's important for me to have close connections and have lots of quality time. So because that's important, that's probably going to govern my decision-making around am I going to go off and um, go surfing all weekend when I have my kids? No. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to spend time with my kids because that's my values and that's important to me. Yeah. And so do you remember the for you becoming a counsellor, was there a day that you kind of went, I'm going to become a counsellor, like that you sort of thought about it and it was very definitive or did you kind of just move towards it? Um, how did you actually come to want to become a counsellor and then move into your studies to become a psychologist? Yeah, well, I decided I would really like to be a psychologist when I was leaving high school because I thought, oh, I always wish I had somebody to talk to. Maybe I could be that person for somebody else. And so then I went to uni and I did my undergrad and then travelled and worked various jobs and, and things like that. And then I did some postgrad and then I became a counsellor and um, then I eventually got my registration as a psychologist and did more study. So it wasn't really a linear right. um, pathway for me. Um, but, yeah, it's been able to work with people, um, especially young people. It's always been a really strong passion of mine. Do you remember, like, the first um, session when, like, you know, the patients arrived and they're sitting in front of you and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm actually now a counsellor and I'm kind of responsible for helping this person. Was it, Do you remember your first time in that experience? Yeah, I was really nervous. What were you nervous about? Just whether I'd be able to do a good job or, or help them or if I knew enough information and, you know, you still feel like that <laughs> even after years of, of doing the, the job. You know, you still always want to do your best and... Yeah, there's so much information as well out there. Like Psychology is so fascinating and interesting because there's so many different areas and there's so much information coming in all the time. Yeah, and do you have um, uh, the certain areas that you want to explore in the future for you? You know, you've had some great experiences around that fawn response um, area. Are there other areas that you want to go into and, and sort of specialise around? Yeah, probably um, staying with that, but then also looking into more relationship dynamics as well. Excellent. Okay, so you get two for the price of one in terms of patients. <laughs> Will that go down to that? Like, I'm not saying like couples counselling, but is it down to that kind of working with an individual who's in a relationship? And how does that work? Yeah, probably. Um, well, looking at, you know, childhood trauma and how that affects your relationships and if there's patterns that you've been having in your relationships as an adult and probably I'm unpacking that and, yeah, looking at the 
different dynamics that you might be more susceptible to falling into and how to work around that. And when you um, are, are, are being, you know, as you say, you've had um, years and years and years of, of experience with um, clinical hours, et cetera, how do you not absorb you know, I think of sometimes if I have friends who might come and have a chat to me, it might be a couple of hours, they might download and need that opportunity. And I, I love the fact that they trust me to, to do that. But it can be quite taxing. It can be quite, you sort of feel heavy almost after the conversation. Although sometimes it can be great and it's lovely to have bonded and connected, but you certainly almost bring a little bit of their emotional baggage or the weight of, of the, the, you know, the, what they're talking about. How do you do that day in and day out and not absorb it all? I think in the beginning I'd be driving home and I'd be thinking about people in my mind and um, I'd be ticking over and I consciously thought, no, I, I can't do this. This isn't a good habit to get into. So when I leave work, I, I try to leave work at work and separate the two or sometimes you, you have a day and, um, you know, some things just might sit with you a little bit more and it's for me, it's just, yeah probably recognizing that and um, taking the time to work through that myself or taking time out or getting some R&R. &R. Yeah. Like do counsellors and psychologists see or talk to other counsellors and psychologists? Oh uh, yeah, totally. So do you, do you go as a patient or do you go as a colleague? Yeah, well it's compulsory. You have to have supervision um, to talk about your caseload and um, kind of like safety checking, make sure that you've got support and, and you're doing the right things. Um, but then also on a personal level, you know, it's, it's always good to be able to go and talk to somebody professionally. So do people come to you for those checks as well or do you go to them? Like have you had to, do people come like say, hey, I need to talk to you about what's going on with the last three months of my clinical time? Oh, I've done supervision, um, not a lot of, lot of it, um, but I have supervised a, a few colleagues. Is it the same process as though it's just a regular member of the public type, type patient? Wouldn't be for personal things. It's more kind of talking about caseloads and mm. work. And do you sort of like tech speak? I suppose you call it that. You that you know you guys things you'd refer to in terms of more like shop talk around <laughs> like hey psychologists know what this all means, and so you're talking at a different level. I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I suppose yeah. When you're both in the same room, it's hard to tell. Yeah. Um, and, but in terms of that switch off time, do you um, have resources or books or anything that you enjoy reading or find, you find helpful that um, you know that, that take your mind or extend your understanding of the the mind and how the brain works? Yeah, always trying to win, find the time um, to be able to read and upskill and or learn about new things. Um, with childhood trauma, I've, I found that um, Pete Walker's book on complex PTSD from surviving to thriving, that was really helpful. And quite often people think, oh, well, you know, PTSD and uh, it sounds really intense and probably, you know, that might not be me or maybe I didn't have a that traumatic childhood. But I think that book is a really good one to read um, for anybody because it, it really kind of explains some of um, the things that can happen or your own behaviour and responses and feelings as an adult um, that stem from childhood trauma. So it sort of contextualises it that you might go, oh, that's actually me and then give it a name sort of thing. So yeah, you, okay. like I, uh, oh yeah, I, I identify with that or I experienced that and I didn't really know and oh, that sort of stems back to this. So I found like that, that book was a really good one for kind of explaining and helping my own understanding. Awesome. And do you think you would um, 
like ever want to write a book yourself? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> have you ever thought about it? I think I'd have to um, brush up on my writing skills first. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I would imagine it would be quite hard to consolidate all your thinking into a perfectly you know, presented piece of documentation. But I think some people think that it's sort of maybe um, they've got to rush into doing those kind of things. Do you think that these days everyone on Instagram is a self-help guru and there's all these like, you know, get my free guide to this and um, I find the people that I talk to who know the most are sort of not doing that so much. (laughs) (laughs) They're busy actually being proper psychologists or in the area of what they're working in. Yeah, well, I suppose if I wanted, if if I did write a book, I'd want it to be information that um, was probably... That there wasn't a lot of information like that out there, so it would be helpful in another way. Right. Yeah, fair enough. And do you think that with everybody at the moment, um, or say compared to when you first started, the discussions around using the terms like mental health has has, has evolved since you started being a counsellor? I think it's talked about a lot more and it's been brought out in the open a lot more, you know, like John Cohen and talking about his own experiences. And um, I think there's been a shift um, from, you know, before where it'd be like, okay, you just need to drink a cup of concrete and harden up and get on with it because we know that that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so I think I think it's evolving and developing. Yeah, it seems that there's the, this, I suppose, the stigma that used to be around, um, you'd say to people, well, you know, if you break your leg, you go to physio. So, you know, those of us who have mental health, um, which seems to be incredibly common on some level, it doesn't hurt to be able to talk about um, your feelings or talk about your thoughts or get that sort of independent um, perspective. Because uh, do you see as a psychologist or for your patients that sometimes it's just about talking? Sometimes you can talk about something that's been floating around in your head and it's just been a jumbled mess and um, you've kind of been at the whim of your thoughts and feelings and then just talking about it can help file it away in an easier place to access, kind of like a computer filing system. Um, so sometimes talking about it is just like being able to file things away so that, you know, it's not like it's going to disappear, but you're just going to be able to sort through that information a lot easier. So for people who don't want to like take that step, I suppose you call it, of uh, seeing a psychologist, seeing a professional, is there a, an actual process in our brain that is connected to like when we write something down or when we verbalise it, you know, transferring it from just being this little electrical thought in our brain cells into like a physical motion of writing or, or you know, making a sound with our voice. Is there something that happens in our brain that is actually different or is it just an old wives' tale that makes, oh, it'll make everything easier if you just talk about your problems? Yeah, but I I think maybe it's not everybody's cup of tea and sometimes it can feel way too uncomfortable talking about it, especially if you haven't grown up in a very emotionally expressive family or if you did talk about emotions, then something bad would happen or you'd get told off. So it can be really difficult for some people to be able to express themselves or talk about their emotions or even just name what they're feeling. Sometimes that can be really hard. So whatever mode you can find to be able to process what you're thinking and feeling, whether that's writing or dancing or creating something, going for a walk, being in nature, just whatever you feel is your process that you can be able to work through some of those things or give it the time and space to be able to do that without pushing it down. Yeah, some of the the common things that come up um, that you hear from different people are things that you just talked about, one of them in terms of nature, right? It seems like quite a simple thing of taking a walk or observing, you know, a tree and, you know, things that are in our natural environment specifically. Is there a human 
drive to the natural environment? Are we just closed in these boxes of technologies and screen that we suddenly, it does something to our brain? Because it seems to be quite common people talk about getting outside or getting into nature as a, a way to reset or to balance your thoughts and your brain. Yeah, well, I think being in nature has always been good for us. I mean, like, we're <laughs> born in nature. Yeah. Um, and quite often we get bogged down with our work and jobs and travel and being in cars and commuting and then we're on social media or we're on our phones and everything's just, you know, so full on that being in nature just kind of makes you stop and take everything in and not think about everything or the rush and the pressure and the stress that you've got going on in your life. You can take a break and... Um, you know, the, the sensory wellness as well from being in nature. So like being able to see a beautiful sunrise or walk on the beach or feel the sand between your toes and hear the waves. I mean, that's all, all really calming, good stuff. So literally the physical senses of, you know, smell and, and as you say, sand on the toes of the touch side of it, that literally does change the way our brains are functioning. Yeah. Well, it's like practicing mindfulness. You know, mindfulness doesn't always have to be lying down and meditating um, it could be being in nature it's just when you're in the present moment experiencing everything through your senses and for some people that find it really hard to slow down and be quiet going for a walk and taking everything in through your senses but you're still being active and kind of absorbing nature that can be a, a easier way to be mindful yeah, I'm glad you touched on that because I think some people um, can consider mindfulness like, oh, it's just meditation. It's, you know, I've got to think of nothing and don't have any thoughts as opposed to actually just being focused on what's in front of you, around you and sort of feeling the the small things in the world as opposed to the grandiose ideas that are running through your head every 20 seconds. Yeah, because it'd be really hard to just not think about anything at all. Were our brains ever built to handle that much information? Is it sort of like, hey, we just need a bit of a circuit breaker here? Is that what mindfulness really does? Yeah, like a reset and give yourself a, a break. And when you're working at a high speed or when everything's just like at a really high intensity level, then it, it can be a really good reset to just pause and reflect or just take everything in in the present moment. And one of the mindful activities um, that people talk about is like gratitude journals. So if like focusing on the positives, I mean, we have touched on not necessarily just negative things during this conversation, but in terms of focusing on uh, the positive side of it, there seems to be a common theme that stopping and, you know, even every day that some people talk about doing it in the evening or in the morning to actually take the moment to write five things or 10 things in a gratitude journal. And people speak very highly of the process. Is there something happening in our brains when we are grateful as opposed to worrying about all the negativity? Is it literally a change in the way that the brain works? Yeah, well, I think you're acknowledging and generating positive thoughts because you're stopping and actively thinking about positive things in your life that you're grateful for. When you're in that whirlwind of, you know, dealing with modern society, quite often we can go down rabbit holes with our thinking and think things a certain way or everything's going wrong or this happened and this happened and this happened and it's terrible. Um, but when you go, hang on a sec, let's also acknowledge the good things then that's always going to be a helpful thing to practice for your brain. Does it actually train your brain to think, you know, some people are like, oh, such a positive person or someone's, oh, such a negative person. Can you train your brain to be more positive? Yeah, well, you can choose what you want to focus on. You know, you have thousands of thoughts throughout your brain, throughout the day. Um, and you also have the power to be able to focus on what thoughts you, you want to... Um, 
to focus on and generate. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I find it personally fascinating because with um, adjacent communications, where thinking becomes reality, being its byline, um, it's always um, amazed me that I can have these thoughts in my brain and through the luck of my life and what I do for my professional and personal uh, way in the world is I can have an idea in my brain and it can become something. It can become a huge event that's got thousands of people at it or it can be something that's on a television screen or it can be on the side of a building or it can be changing somebody's life and making them you know, better at communicating or whatever it is. It actually was, you know, last week it was just this thing buzzing around in my brain and now it's actually real and it's a really interesting concept when you start to play around with how that can happen and I think a lot of people waste their time tied up on either trying to think about what other people think is the best thing to do or being scared to actually put their thoughts out there. So I think that gratitude journal for me, not saying that I'm the best at doing that, is probably where I would sort of sit to say, yeah, that makes sense to me because we have all these thoughts, there's too much time to waste, we should be positive and what is it we want to create and put, you know, leave our legacy in, in the world, I suppose, as opposed to just watching everybody else's life, right? So do you think it's about people taking ownership in terms of saying it's okay to own your emotions, it's okay to have your thoughts and sort of just get over all the reasons not to do something. And it's okay to try and fail and try again and fail again because at least you're giving it a go rather than just thinking about it. Yeah. Is there a psychological um, benefit to failure in that sense of, you you know you learn a lot more by doing something and failing yeah, well, than everything. just thinking about it, right? Everything's a learning experience, and failing is might be bringing you one step closer to getting to where you want to be. Um, and I think sometimes we can find things really daunting or have a lot of anxiety about starting something new or creating something or putting ourselves out there um, for the world to see. But um, you know we've got to remember that successful people quite often didn't get it right on the first time. Like successful people often failed and failed and failed again, like all the time. It's being able to take yourself on that journey without being too critical or hard on yourself that you you get in the way of yourself because you're, you're busy judging yourself before anybody else judges you. So it's just letting go of that and being able to take that step forward and just being like, hey, this is all part of the journey of where I'm headed. Well, I think that's a very uh, lovely way to um, end the conversation because looking forward to um, the the future, I think there's some really great things that people would have been able to learn from what you've been able to, to share with me today. So thank you very much again for taking the time. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I think uh, we've known each other now, we're trying to work it out, it was like 20 five years or something oh like that. Oh, my gosh. I think it was the first <laughs> time we met. So uh, it's been awesome to be able to see you from afar, um, the journey and the fact that we've been able to reconnect and you could join me. So I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Andrew. That concludes this episode of Now I Am Listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and discovered a little bit more about how we all see the world and why. Visit nowiamlistening.com for more information about Dr. Madeline Ami and her psychological focus on the fawn response. Thanks to our production partner, Evoke Audio. Check out adjacentcommunications.com for all your strategic marketing and content production needs. Turn your thinking into reality today. You can also hear our other episodes from this series by visiting nowiamlistening.com. As always, thanks for listening.